Century Baghdad, a popular teacher caused a stir by publicly shouting, I am the truth. For this presumed blasphemy, he would be executed. But centuries later, he is revered by many as a saint whose message was misunderstood. He was but one of many controversial figures of Sufism who continue to divide opinion to this day. For the most part, Sufi mysticism has flourished next to Islamic law and ritual prayer as part of a complete system. But in the early days, when the boundaries of Sufism were being established, there would be some conflict. And that is our subject today. So please stay tuned. you were with us, you know, we talked about the great Sufi master Jalaluddin Rumi, who wrote about the intimate knowledge of God, the experience that can only come from direct contact. He talked about the knowledge of the heart in the spirit of God and not just the intellect. Well, today we're going to continue on that same line, but we're going to go back a little bit and talk about the origins and the development of that idea and some of the controversies that it caused. So let's go back to the beginning. The Arabic word ma'arifa is one of several words that can be translated as knowledge. But this specific word, it refers more to a state of knowing. And that's actually a better term for it, an active knowing of something rather than just the knowledge. It's an intense kind of knowing. And it can be used for all sorts of things outside of a religious context. You know, there's different types of knowledge. Like we can say, you know the state capitals. Um, You know the square root of 16. And there's a different kind of knowledge when we say someone, quote, knows karate, or they know politics, or they know music, meaning you have an intimate knowledge of it, a familiarity with it, uh, a comfort with it. Well, it's that second kind of knowledge that we're talking about when we say ma'arifa. And when it's used in this Sufi context, specifically, that ma'arifa is that knowing, knowing of God. Okay, and that is, as we said, that is the goal that Sufis are striving for. But how did this come about? Well, we believe it was an early Sufi named Dhu Anun al-Masri, who is generally attributed with developing the concept in that context as a religious concept. Of course, it, it had existed before that. Now, we don't know a lot about al-Masri, and like many of these figures we're talking about in Sufism, the legend uh, versus the reality is uh, hard to sort out. But he's said to have been of Nubian origin, and we believe he was born in the southern Egyptian city of Akhmim, which had been a major pharaonic temple site. Now, this is actually important in his development uh, because al-Musri, like a lot of Egyptians, he's a Muslim, but he's growing up in this environment where he sees the effects of the ancient Egyptian culture. Now, of course, millions of tourists go to Egypt even today to see the ruins of the of the pyramids, of Karnak, of these great temples. And they know that these things are all based on a a religious idea, a very different religious idea than we have today. There was a whole set of Greek gods. Uh, There was the idea of the Pharaoh being a god. And the building of pyramids was an idea to help um, protect him and guide him in the afterlife. Well, if you're a Muslim or even a Christian growing up in Egypt, you see these two ideas, these two cultures existing, and it it makes you wonder about them. Uh, Well, al-Musri was definitely a guy who wondered about these things, who speculated about them. Now, in this particular uh, town that he's from, Akhmim, 
the ruins are mostly gone today. But when he lived there, um, and again, we're talking over a thousand years ago, um, a large part of the famous temple there still remained, and so he would have seen that. At the same time, the city he lived in was a thriving center of Coptic, uh, that's Coptic Christian, Egyptian Christian, and Greek culture, which of course was quite common of Egypt at the time when uh, Islam came to it. Uh, and al-Masri was one of the early generations of Egyptian Muslims because Islam had only recently come to Egypt. Uh, the, the country had just recently been conquered by the Arabs. And the process of conversion to Islam and the Arab culture that went with it was a gradual process that took many generations. So what we're saying here is that Dhul Nun grew up in a very multicultural environment, a very rich intellectual environment where there were a lot of different philosophies and uh, world belief systems that were circulating in the environment in which he lived, and that's going to have a big impact on him. Well, that's the situation in Egypt. Now, what was happening in the larger Islamic empire at the time? Of course, in the capital, Baghdad, uh, the great caliph, Al-Ma'mun was in charge, and this was really the height of the uh, Khalif's authority and his power and investment in the sciences and the arts. Al-Ma'mun specifically, we dedicated an entire episode to him early on, was probably one of the greatest sponsors of the arts, and he considered himself to be quite a well-educated intellectual, and he was very curious. And among his many endeavors to bring all the world's knowledge into his Islamic civilization, of which there were many, uh, one of those was exploring the ancient Egyptian ruins. The Abbasids were, of course, very interested in Greek culture, and to some extent uh, the Hindu culture, but they could also see the tremendous remainders of the pharaonic Egyptian uh, civilization there in Egypt. And Ma'mun specifically was one who was very interested in these, and he mounted some of the first explorations to go to these great pharaonic uh, ruins. Now, of course, today... Millions of tourists go to Egypt to see the ancient ruins. I mean, it's the biggest source of income to the country. Uh, But historically, interest in these sites has waxed and waned over the centuries. Uh, That sounds a little bit strange to us. If you're living in the shadow of the pyramids, you'd think you'd be aware of them and be interested in them. But for long periods of time, the Egyptians really didn't care about them. And in many cases, for long periods, they actually used these sites as... Uh, basically quarries, uh, sources for bricks. And even today, you can go to parts of Cairo, parts of medieval Cairo, and you can see walls that have hieroglyphs in them, like half of an upside-down foot just stuck in somebody's wall. It's because somebody went to a temple and started pulling bricks out and using them. Now, of course, the loot, which was tremendous amount of, of gold and money, was stolen out of all of these long before. And we know this because the one that escaped, of course, was King Tutankhamun's tomb, which was found in the 20th century and was just full of gold and treasures. But the others had all been looted. So Ma'mun really wasn't in it for the money, and he wasn't going to get any money from this. But he was interested in understanding this civilization. Again, he saw himself as the leader of the Islamic civilization, which was now the inheritor of all the other civilizations that had come before it. And amongst those was the Egyptians. And so this was one of the periods when which there was tremendous interest in the pharaonic relics. They would go back and many of them would be covered by sand uh, and and left until Napoleon came along. That would be uh, another one. Well, Luanun also had interest in the pharaonic relics around him. Now, the legend says that he was able to read hieroglyphics which is pretty impressive because they were not actually deciphered until the 19th century and at that time it took the French archaeologist Champollion over 20 years to figure out the Rosetta Stone which he used as the key to deciphering them. So this was not an easy process. 
Now, scholars have debated this for years, and there have been some who try to claim uh, that Luol Nun actually could read hieroglyphics, but this is very unlikely. Uh, because you first of all didn't leave any record of what they actually meant. What is more likely is that Luol Nun had a quote understanding of ancient Egyptian symbols in the sense that one has a spiritual understanding of something, of nature, of God. Uh, so in the sense that he interpreted these in his own Islamic beliefs, in his own Sufi beliefs, and he had an understanding of what they meant. Well, in any case, a lot of people accepted his understandings and learned from them. Now, for a guy whose life we actually know very little about, there are a lot of theories about how he got his ideas. One theory is the influence of Greek philosophy, which would have made sense in the time he's living. Now, if you've taken a philosophy course, you know that the Greeks had lots of different philosophies, many, many different ones. So we've talked a lot in this series about the logical, rational philosophy of Aristotle, who was the, the big man in that. But there's also many other versions of uh, Greek philosophy that were quite popular in Egypt at the time. And one of these is what is known as Hermetic philosophy, which comes from the name of Hermes, who is one of the Greek gods. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here to talk about Hermeticism, uh, which you can spend a lot of time discussing. But the basic belief in this system which is somewhat different from other Greek philosophies we've mentioned, is that there is one eternal truth that underlies all other belief systems. It underlies all other religions. Basically, all religions out there are a means of expressing or trying to get to this one underlying truth. And specifically, that there is one divine essence, which some people call God, some people call the universe, call it the prime mover, call it the absolute, and so on. So we're talking here about a very generic divinity. We're not talking about one who has a lot of specific characteristics and a specific narrative. So if all these different religions have different interpretations of this divine absolute, and therefore they have conflicting theologies, well, that indicates that nobody's really getting the pure truth. They're all getting distilled versions of it. So the Christians see it one way, the Jews see it a little bit differently. Uh, of course, um, the ancient Greeks, they viewed this through Zeus and Apollo and so on. So that means that they're all getting a distorted version of this. And so that leads to the conclusion, quite logically, that the real absolute truth must be pretty hard to see clearly. Most people don't see it clearly, and that's obviously the goal of the Hermeticist, is to see it clearly. So therefore, you could say that that real truth, the real absolute truth, is hidden. Now, if this starts to sound a little bit like the Sufi philosophy we discussed last week, you can see why some people would consider it an influence on uh, Sufism and specifically an influence on al-Masri. Well, Hermeticism as a philosophy had died out for a while, but it enjoyed a resurgence when the monotheists discovered it. You can see where they would like it because Christian writers could say, well, obviously what the Hermetics were talking about when they talked about this absolute essence is the God of the Bible. Even though they didn't know that and they didn't use that word, that's exactly what they meant. Of course, the Muslims would look at this as, again, another evidence that ancient Greeks that they love so much for their sciences really weren't the pagans that they seem. I mean, they knew about God. They didn't quite have the story that we have it. So this is why Hermeticism is seen as a big influence on Sufis like al-Masri. Now, the Hermetics were big into what we would call the pseudosciences today, like alchemy. Now, we think of alchemy as trying to turn cheap metals into gold, but the real focus of alchemists was to discern, determine the, quote, nature of materials. Now, they didn't know about electrons and protons and neutrons, so they're trying to understand what made lead, lead, and what made silver, silver, and why they acted differently 
that was a big science. Now, hermetics were going beyond this level, and they were trying to figure out the nature of life, of death, of transformation, of reincarnation, which was a big thing for them. How one thing gets turned into another. You know, we die, and then we decay, and our bodies go into the dust. But from the dust outgrows plants and something else. How does that one thing change into another, and how does the nature of it change? How does flesh, which has very specific properties, end up getting transformed into a tree, which is wood, which has different properties? Okay, so uh, the Hermetics were big into this because they saw this as part of the nature of that absolute. Astrology it was also a big one for them. And we know the difference between astrology as the pseudoscience, you know, what, what month is a good one to get married in, and astronomy as the real science about how the planets actually move. Well, in the early days, these were sort of mixed. And so the Hermetics were big into astrology, meaning they saw the movement of the stars as part of the communication of the absolute, of the one, this essential essence. And all of these things were important to help us understand the mysteries of the universe. Now, today, when we use the word hermetic, I'm sure you've heard it before, we usually say hermetically sealed, which means something that is tightly sealed up. Well, that's coming from this idea of a truth that is hidden, that you have to open. And so that's where the word comes from. In any case, at the time of Dhuwanun al-Musri, Hermeticism was uh, big in Egypt, and one reason is because this is where the ancient manuscripts about it were found, and it was already old, old stuff by the time he was alive. Okay, so this is one of the influences on al-Masri. Another related philosophy, which is very important, is Gnosis, which is spelled with a G, like Gnosis, and this was very popular among early Christian and Jewish sects. Now, of course, we know this best from the word agnostic, which means one who doesn't know, right? If you say you're agnostic about God, it means you don't know if there's a God or not. Well, the A, of course, at the beginning means not. If you take the A off, then you have the word gnostic, which means one who says they do know. In this case, it's talking about spiritual knowledge, which is separate from faith, because the idea is Faith is believing, right? Trusting. Well, I don't, I don't know how God does it, but I, I trust. I f- have faith. We're talking about knowing. Someone who doesn't have to trust, doesn't have to wish. So Gnostics were also very popular in Egypt in the centuries leading up to Islam. And um, they believed in this idea of spiritual knowledge, was the key to salvation, not faith. Now, there's a big difference. And someone who believes that faith, you know, believing in something that you can't prove, that you can't see, that you can't really know, but having faith leads to salvation, which is, is much more common in Christianity today. Well, they're saying, no, it's this knowledge, the idea of having this direct knowledge of God that you only get through experience, not through the head knowledge. Uh, that is the key to salvation. Well, they would eventually be declared heretics in Christianity. A lot of a lot of different sects would be declared heretics and persecuted. But among the early Muslim philosophers, um, their ideas were discussed a lot more freely, and they, I mean, it was something you could get away with much easier than you could in Christianity at the time. Okay, so what does this all mean? So now we have all these different philosophies circulating in Egypt in the 8th century, and it's only slowly being converted to Islam. So up to this point, Sufism, which was just beginning to bud, Sufism, again, this idea of developing the self, of coming to know God, it focused mostly on deeds, on following the law, trying to uh, purify yourself. So Lu Anun is going to become known for popularizing the Sufi doctrine of Ma'arifa. Again, this idea of knowing God. And he's going to borrow from a lot of these philosophies that we've mentioned. Um, 
this idea of having this intimate knowledge of God that you can only get through direct experience, through direct communication with God, and not through head knowledge and studying. So you can see where this sounds very similar to what the Gnostics were doing. It sounds similar to what the Hermetics were doing. Now, along with that, uh, he's going to borrow a lot of the ideas from the Hermetics about all this knowledge we have of the world are parts of this. So you study the stars, you study alchemy, and you study the relics of ancient civilizations, and this is all part of this united essential knowledge. Remember, the, the idea here is that all religions, all philosophies are actually realizing the same truth, but it's filtered and distorted. And we learn that truth by looking at the stars, looking at nature, looking at the nature of objects and compounds. And this is all part of understanding this essential truth. And in that same regard, if you have these Egyptian hieroglyphs, that nobody understands what they mean. Well, this is another form of hidden knowledge. And so we study this with the idea of seeing this as part of this eternal, unified, absolute, which we know as Muslims is really talking about God. So this is the way someone like Zul Nun is said to, quote, know hieroglyphics or to be able to read hieroglyphics the same way he said to understand the nature of metals to understand astrology and the movement of the stars i mean not talking in a scientific sense as we would say it uh, but as all part of this essential knowledge of the world which of course he recognizes is the god of the quran well dhul nun like a lot of Sufi masters, unlike Rumi, uh, didn't write any books of his own. Everything we know about him was reported by his followers. But they followed him very closely, so a lot of the sayings that are attributed to him continue to be influential today. And there's many, you can Google and find many of them. But a few of the sayings that his followers have preserved in particular and cherished give an idea of the direction in which his uh, thinking is going. So, for example, he said, quote, Never think of anyone as inferior to you. Open the inner eye, and you will see the one glory shining in all creatures. End quote. So this idea, no matter who you are, once you have this knowledge, this inner eye, which of course is the knowledge of God, I mean, you see that we're, we're all equal right, in the sight of God. Okay. He also said, quote, Whatever eyes can see relates to knowledge, and whatever hearts can know relates to certainty. And th these are two different words in here. When he's using knowledge, it's not the ma'arifa, it's the ilm, which is more like factual knowledge. Okay. So your eyes, meaning your logic, right, your study, you, you can only have ilm. You can only have this like factual knowledge. But what the heart can know, that gets to certainty. And he's talking about yaqeen. Yaqeen here is this absolute certainty. Again, this idea, not head knowledge, but heart knowledge. And he describes his own experience. He says, I embarked on three journeys. On the first journey, I came across sciences understood by the common folk and by the elite. On the second journey, I came across sciences understood by the elite, but not the common folk. And on the third journey, I came across sciences understood by neither the common folk nor the elite. Now, the two words he uses here, the common folk are the am, and the elite are the chasa. And th these are very common words in Arabic culture and Arabic philosophy, even to this day. Um, ironically, they've been reversed. But through this classical period, when we talked about adab and refinement and learning, there was this idea of being part of the khas, right? The, the elite, the educated versus the common folk. I mean, we have the same thing. And if we think about 
say, England in the 19th century when you, you, know, you want to be educated at Eton and Oxford and you were well-read versus you know, the riffraff. And that's the way it, it was looked at during most of the classical period in Islam. And so he's, he's uh, using that. He's embracing that, saying, okay, there's some stuff everybody understands. And there are those uh, sciences that only the elite, the well-educated, understand. And that was generally accepted in Islamic society. I mean, the educated were very proud of themselves. These are people like Ibn Sina. Right, and Al-Farabi, who are very proud of themselves. But he's saying, okay, even you guys, you think you're smart? Ooh, beyond you, there is knowledge you don't have uh, that you don't get from books and from study. And mm, by the way, I have it. Now, just interesting, just as, as a side note, of course, when we hit the 20th century, uh, those two words become reversed, right? And everybody wants to show that they're men of the people. So the am, right, the, the masses, they, they become important in the, the chas, the elite, you know, they become the bad guys. But anyway, uh, he, he's saying no, no matter what, it doesn't matter. You, you can be the, the most educated professor in the world. There's this knowledge that, you know, you only get from the heart. Okay, now this sounds, you know, very similar to what we heard from Al-Rumi. And when we talked about Rumi, we talked about how he's popular with all sorts of non-Muslim people. I mean, his sayings are on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and so forth because of this idea of a transcendent knowledge, this absolute knowledge that, of course, they know to be uh, referring to the God of the Quran. But when you talk about it in general, it sounds a lot like Zen or something else or Hindu mysticism. And the same way Al-Musri, just like uh, Rumi, he's often quoted. Specific quotes are picked out that don't sound uh, particularly Islamic. So, in fact, one of his famous sayings, and when we listen to it just taken by itself out of context, it sounds very Zen-like, very New Agey sounding. Uh, he says that the first step taken by one who knows, one who is enlightened, is bewilderment, then poverty, then union, and then bewilderment again. And, I mean, that's a very Zen saying, the idea that, you know, the most enlightened, the most knowledgeable person knows that they know nothing. This is the sort of ironic statements they make. So you start out not knowing. Then you go through this whole step, and then you have no knowledge. But then the one who truly knows is bewildered again, meaning you have a knowledge that can't be put into words. You have this absolute experience, direct experience of God, and you, know, you, you can't express it. But it's real. However, even though that sounds very Zen-like and very generic, it's clear that al-Musri, like Arumi and like all of the characters we're going to talk about, they had a very definite Islamic context in mind. Uh, al-Musri said, I came to know my Lord through my Lord. Had it not been for my Lord, I would not have known my Lord. Okay? He's focused. All the knowledge comes from God. He, he says at one point that truth is God's sword on his earth. It is placed upon nothing without it cuts right through it. Right? Sincerity is that which is free from being corrupted by the enemy. So it's, it's very much this idea of God versus the enemy, uh, God's truth. Okay, so he's, he's very much speaking in an Islamic context, but of course... Uh, people quote him in the sense where he sounds quite generic. Well, anyway, Al-Musri died, and he is buried in Cairo's famous City of the Dead Cemetery, and his tomb is visited by a great many pilgrims, as are many of the tombs in the City of the Dead. But his influence would continue on. One of his students was a Persian by the name of Sahal al-Tustari. And like most of the Sufis that we're going to talk about, al-Tustari started out as a scholar of the Quran and the Hadith and the Law. 
but eventually would become more famous for his Sufi ideas. Uh, but in any case, we should emphasize the fact that he's not like a rebel. He's not like someone who has eschewed traditional knowledge. No, he's got a solid base in the traditional Islamic sciences, and even people who are more famous for Islamic law, most of them, a great many of them, were into Sufism to an extent as well. So these things are not necessarily opposed. In fact, for most part, they're not opposed, uh, but only for maybe certain people on the fringes who you know, don't believe in mixing them. But again, to emphasize the fact that even Tustari, who would become famous as a great Sufi, as a great mystic, uh, was very much a student of the traditional Islamic sciences as well. For example, we know at one point he met the famous Hadith scholar Abu Daoud, who is one of the... the most famous, who was uh, quoted in the lineages, in the Isnad of many Hadiths. And he asked uh, Abu Dawood to stick out his tongue, and then he kissed the tongue of Abu Dawood. Now, this may sound a little bit kinky, uh, but what he's doing is he said, this is the tongue that narrated the Hadiths of the Prophet. Now, you might not want to get that sort of uh, tribute from someone, Maybe a handshake will be good enough, but it shows um, just how much this famous Sufi revered the Hadith scholars at the time. And Abu Dawood would quote this in, in honor of Atustari as well. So, I mean, they, they were close. I mean, these were not at war with each other. Okay. So, anyway, Atustari, even though he was Persian, he studied with al Masri, and al Masri did travel to the Arabian Peninsula, which is where he met Atustari. Uh, he took this idea, the intimate knowing of God, and developed it even further. Now, the part he is best known for is his claim that the Quran has several levels of meaning to it. And he distinguishes between the dhahr, which is, which is a word for appearance, literally, and that means the aurur layer, and the batin which means the inside, which here we're talking about the core meaning. Now, this concept actually made some people very uncomfortable, and you may recognize why, because this idea of the outer meaning and the inner meaning of the Quran sounds uh, very Shiite. And in fact, that is an idea that is particularly in Ismaili Shia is, is, is absolutely uh, something they believe in. And you remember, the big difference between Sunni and Shia is that the Shia believe in spiritual leaders who have special spiritual gifts and insights, whereas Sunnis declare that the revelation ends with Muhammad and all we have today is scholars who study it. Well, you can see how Sufism, as we have discussed it so far, and particularly this concept of an inner Batin meaning through the Quran that you don't get from intellect, you can see how this starts to sound a bit Shiite. And we're going to see this tension continue. Al-Tustadi would be accused of being Shia. Uh, great many Sufis are accused of being Shia. Uh, I'll, I'll, this is a thing to accuse anybody you don't like of at the time. Uh, but you can see the similarities. Uh, but in any case, for the most part, even though this sounds mystical, I'm going to go learn the secret meaning of the Quran, when you actually learn what these so-called inner meanings of the Quran are, they end up being common sense. So this is not something like numerology. You know, when you, you read every third letter and put it together, it means that, you know, whatever. Um, which, of course, there's stuff like that out there. But most of the popular Sufis who are regarded today, like Tustari, um, what they call the inner meaning, uh, it ends up being what you would think the inner meaning would be. Um, so, for example, let's look at some examples, because nowadays, even though this stuff was somewhat secret, I mean, nowadays on the Internet you can read all about it. So the Quran specifically prohibits stealing, and that outer meaning is established in Islamic law, right? And so, you know, you don't steal or you get punished. And so there are specific rules in Islamic law about how much one steals uh, to, to reach this threshold, 
what conditions that it happens in, you know, what, how did it happen? In some circumstances, it's excusable. In some circumstances, it is to be punished. Uh, okay, so that would be the outer meaning of it. Okay, how do we enforce this? Quran says don't steal. How do we enforce this legally? That's very much a physical outer level meaning. The inner meaning, though, would be the spirit of that command, right? Don't, don't take anything away from a person. Don't take their joy. Don't take their peace, right? Don't, don't take your love away from them. Right? Uh, similarly, fasting has specific rules. Right? And we know, like during the month of Ramadan, when you fast, from sunrise to sunset, how we determine sunrise and sunset, what you have to refrain from and when. Um, but the inner meaning would be like not just saying I'm not going to eat and drink water, let anything pass my mouth during sunrise to sunset during Ramadan. The inner meaning would be turning away from everything that is a distraction from God because that's what fasting is about, right? Focusing on God, getting away from the distractions. Well, the inner meaning would be to turn from everything that is a distraction from you. Uh, for example, uh, one of the modern interpretations of this that is, is actually very common is that the Quran says nothing about using a cell phone while fasting. Right? But for a lot of people, the cell phone is an obsession. It is a distraction. It's probably a bigger distraction than water is. So, therefore, in this inner meaning, you should put the cell phone away because it's a distraction to you. You shouldn't text and so forth. And so this would be an idea of the inner meaning. So it's not really talking about anything radical. Now, of course, there have been um, teachers who have popped up and said, no, the, the inner meaning means that I am actually, you know, have been sent here on a special mission. And, you know, and then just like in any religion, they give some pretty crazy stuff. But for the most part, it, it seems to be a fairly common sense teaching. And we see a similar thing, by the way, in Christianity. And the, the best example, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives, where he says, you have been told this, but I say, right? you have been told, do not kill. But I say to you that anyone who curses his brother, you have been told, uh, do not commit adultery. But I, I say that everyone who looks on a woman with lust commits adultery. So what Jesus was doing was going from, you know, physical laws to the inner spirit of it. So that's a similar thing than what's going on here. Uh, in any case, Atustari, as important as he was, is less known than his famous teacher, al-Masri, and his very same student, Mansur al-Halaj who is the next person we want to talk about, who is quite a controversial figure today. So who was he? Mansur al-Halaj also came from Persia. But he actually pursued such an intense program of instruction uh, from the early years of his life uh, that it's said that he lost the ability to speak in Persian. Because, of course, the language of instruction, the language of study, the language of the Quran is Arabic. And he studied it so intensely. He spent so much time in school, immersed in this environment, that he gave up Persian. Uh, he is said to have memorized the Quran by age 12. And then he went on to study all the traditional sciences beyond that. He studied with Atustari, and he became a Sufi leader. And he also ma married into a famous Sufi family. But he became very disillusioned with the politics in the Sufi world. And this is something to bear in mind, right? Even though we've been talking about the oneness and the unity and the self-denial, you know, anytime you have a group of people, there's going to be politics. And there were leadership struggles within Sufi communities, just like in every human communities. I mean, we even hear about this in the history of Zen, of struggles between various Zen leaders. And you wonder, how can that possibly be with the philosophy that you're supposed to be following? Well, um, you know, that's reality. Um, but Halaj, we can see he was, he was very intense. He was very much a purist. And he took these ideas 
very seriously. Uh, so even though he was very well connected through marriage and um, had good uh, connections in the Sufi world, he wanted to get away from all the politics. So first he went to Mecca on a pilgrimage, and he vowed to stay there in silence and in meditation for a year, which he did. And then he came back and he gave up his official, quote, official Sufi position as a leader so he could teach more freely to the public. Now, this was something that the other Sufis didn't like because, as we sort of mentioned so far, their belief was that you had to have special training. You had to be properly initiated. I mean, not that you had to be elite or... Um, you know, had to be part of the upper class, but you had to have special training, that this was knowledge, understanding you got from experience, and that not everyone could do it. Well, Halaj wanted to share this with everybody. Uh, he wanted to teach and write for the public, and this gave him a large following. But this also didn't sit well with a lot of Sufi leaders. In fact, uh, Halaj was open to everybody, uh, even a number of high-ranking Christians, in the government, became his students. They still remain Christians, but again, there's always this concept of this transcendent reality, the transcendent nature of God that goes beyond all religions. So, I mean, Christians came to study with him. Uh, so, basically, he was pressured to leave Baghdad because of this. And so he went out to eastern Iran, uh, but interestingly, even though he was back in Persia, and he was Persian, he spent most of his time among the Arab communities that were being established out there. Uh, this was still in the fairly early days of the Abbasids, and they were establishing mostly military communities to extend their rule and their control. So uh, Al-Halaj spent most of his time amongst uh, the Arabs. At one point, he made a long journey through Central Asia and India, and he returned to Baghdad, it is said, with 400 disciples. Well, if Halaj had been upsetting people before, it's when he returned that he really started rebelling against the established Sufi order. I mean, he just thought there was a lot of corruption, a lot of politics, a lot of not focusing on the stuff you should be focusing, and he wanted to make it clear that he was no part of that. So he started dressing in rags, uh, trying to act poor, and this is where he actually started praying for God to make his life hard, to make him despised and rejected. Now, of course, his point was he wanted to be rejected by man, uh, by man's political structures, so he could be one with God. But he made a point of it, of saying that, well, society is so corrupt, the only way to be pure is to really turn against it. So he became an outcast. And you know we've seen uh, a lot of this in other religions. The idea of the holy man who rejects society and who is rejected by society. This is common in religions. I mean, Russian culture places a lot of respect on the, the Yorodovi, the, the holy fool. Christianity has all kinds of hermits and monks and saints who you know, essentially, uh, essentially live outside society and then intentionally put themselves into miserable conditions. I mean, even John the Baptist in the Bible is described as living like a wild man, eating locusts and honey and living out in the wilderness. So like the other Sufis we mentioned, uh, Halaj really thought that you had to deny oneself to annihilate the ego in order to become one with God. So he's rejected all these, uh, you know, all the honors and all the power and luxuries of society. And he's making that really clear to everybody, okay? But he still, like the others, he did this through meditation and chanting, focusing on God to the extent that one uh, began to forget oneself. Well, this may have been a little bit radical to some people, but it's the way it began to manifest itself in his life that really upset people. And this is what uh, Al-Halaj is famous for, for better or worse. So uh, Halaj would repeat statements that a lot of people considered to be blasphemous. And these are something that become more and more common 
in Sufism, and particularly the next and final guy we're going to talk about, the is called the Shatiyat, which is the idea of an almost involuntary, spontaneous expression that you make, something that you just blurt out. But you blurt it out because you're in this ecstasy, this oneness with God, and you just shout out something. Well, uh, a lot of the ones Halaj shouted out, people didn't like. And if, in fact, if you take them at face value, they would be blasphemous. Uh, by far, the most controversial was his statement, Ana al-Haq, which means, I am the truth. Now, of course, the truth is God and can only be God. So anyone going around claiming that they are the truth is either saying that they are God or they replace God, and that's about as blasphemous as you can possibly get. Well, his followers definitely don't believe that's what he meant. He's not saying that Mansur al-Halaj is the real truth, forget everything else you've learned. Okay, We know this because he spent his whole life denying his self, focusing on God, trying to become one with God, okay? So, obviously, he, he, he's not worshiping al-halaj. What he's saying, of course, is that his self has disappeared so completely that the only thing left is God, right? He, he is identifying with God so, so closely that when he says, I am the truth, the I is God. But he, he's forgotten all about halaj completely. Okay, in fact... Halaj would be known for making a lot of, quote, I statements. I am this, I am that, which could be taken as um, blasphemous. Not nearly as much as the next guy we're going to talk about. But the general consensus, after all the hoopla died down, is that these were all cases of him repeating or quoting God, uh, identifying so closely with God that the I always refers to God. He's just so in love with God. Now, even that, though, even once you say that, this is going to be a problem for a lot of people, and particularly Sunnis. Right? We, we've talked about the difference between Sunni and Shia, and the idea is a Shia imam supposedly gets direct communication with God. But in Sunnis, and, th and this is where they drew the line, Muhammad is the final prophet, the last messenger to receive a message from God. We only study what he received. And so even the idea that this is, quote, God speaking through someone, um, well, even that can be a little bit disturbing, okay? Uh, but that was not the only problem. There were other complaints against al-Halaj. Most Sufi leaders opposed the idea of him teaching directly to the masses. And you can see this is a perfect example of why they opposed it. So going around saying, I am the truth, is something that maybe someone can understand if they have the proper training. Right? If they've been brought up in Sufi circles and they, they understand what you mean. But if you go around the streets saying, I am the truth, the average guy out there doesn't know what you mean. And you've already got a huge following. Even part of your following is non-Muslim. Now you're going around saying, I am the truth, and people are repeating it. Well, maybe some of them don't understand this, uh, and they think you really are claiming that halaj is the truth. Okay, so if you've already got some problems with Sufis to begin with, this is, is further going to make people angry. And it's also gonna upset the relationship Remember, Sufi leaders, for the most part, are in pretty well with the political authority. They get along well, but part of this is they have an established relationship. And the understanding is, well, you know, we teach what we teach kind of in secret, right? There's this secret truth. Uh, we teach it in our little circles. We don't go running around the streets yelling it out because it could be misunderstood. Well, here's a guy who's upsetting the apple cart. So he, he's going to make a lot of people mad um, right off the bat. And finally, don't forget that although this is a, a big time for Sufism, this is really the heyday of rationalism. This is the time of rationalist philosophers like Ibn Sina, who say pure reason and intellect can figure out any mystery in the universe. And so they're naturally opposed to the idea of mystic knowledge. 
and they would look for any excuse to take down these Sufis who are out there proposing it. Well, Al-Halaj running through the streets claiming to be the truth is a great excuse. So, uh, Halaj would be arrested, he was imprisoned for nine years, and he would eventually be executed for blasphemy. As straightforward as that sounds, okay, he said, I am the truth, he was executed for blasphemy. In reality, there's a lot of doubt whether that was the actual motivation. Now, it's certainly the justification, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence out there that would suggest that this was a pretext to go after this guy. And the challenge that we have with a lot of this is that history is, of course, written by the winners. The person who gets executed doesn't write the history. And when you actually look at it, the situation gets a little bit cloudy. So first off, uh, just where, when, and how often Halaj actually said, I am the truth, is debated. Because again, he didn't write this. Uh, some scholars claim he only said this in private. Okay, so others say that he was repeating it in public and that he was repeating it nonstop, that he had become overwhelmed and couldn't stop saying it. So he didn't just say this once. I mean, he was actually going through the streets repeating this. But again, that information came out after he was executed. So uh, we, we don't know how big an issue this was. But what we do know is that this guy was really causing a lot of trouble for the political and religious elites out there. He was a rebel. He had a large following among the masses. He was calling out corruption everywhere. That always gets you in trouble. And at one point, he led a large protest movement, which even attempted to get the caliph removed for corruption. Okay, and That's not to mention all the lesser officials he created problems for. So... Uh, you can see where he got in trouble, and he was in prison for nine years before they finally killed him. So if it was just straight-up blasphemy, you think they would have done it right off the bat. So it does seem to be the case that Halaj was executed because he was a troublemaker, he was a political problem, um, but he's remembered today as being executed for making this blasphemous statement. I mean, if you look up anything about him, that's the first thing will come up. He said, I am the truth, and he was executed for blasphemy. This is important. Uh, I make this distinction and, and go into that detail because the next person we're going to talk about, and our final one today, uh, Bayezid Bistami, he said even more controversial things. If we look at what he said, I mean, it was even... Uh, more extreme than what Halaj did, and he was not executed. Um, so the claim that it was strictly for blasphemy is a bit shaky. Um, despite how controversial he was, though, Halaj would later on be revered by later generations as a great Sufi teacher. Now, there are some, even today, who say, no, that was blasphemy, and it shows you the danger of Sufism and uh, mysticism. Uh, but for the most part, if, particularly if you look up on any sort of Sufi websites, Al-Halaj is seen as a misunderstood character who, I mean, actually really did have the truth. We've talked about a number of characters who have developed this idea of intimate knowledge of God. The last one we're going to mention today is another Persian, and his name is Bayezid Bustami. Uh, Bayezid is a, a Persianization of Abu Yazid. He was from the city of Bastam in northern Iran, uh, and he's actually born a little bit before Halaj. Uh, now, he was influenced by Dhu al Masri as well. Uh, Bastami spent most of his childhood surrounded by Sufism. His father was a Sufi mystic. All his brothers were. Uh, they practiced isolation and self-denial. And Bastami, from a, a young age, was quite into this. Now, we're going to save him for last here because Bastami took this idea of oneness with God the furthest. 
he is credited with the concept of fana. And fana means emptiness or void. Uh, a fana can be like, in a city, can be like a square, like an area that's open. But what he's talking about is the complete passing away of the self. This idea that you have to completely eliminate yourself in order to have union with God. Like many before him, of course, Bistami felt that achieving this union with God went into deep knowledge that goes beyond words, and it was incomprehensible to the average person. And he didn't want to try to make it comprehensible to the average person. So he even used the term sukkar, which may be familiar to uh, students of Arabic. Sukkar means drunkenness, right? Sukran means drunk. So he's talking about a state of ecstasy one would achieve, not through wine, but through intoxication with the love of God. Now, this took a long time. Even Bistami himself admitted that this took a long time. When he was asked how old he was, he said he was four years old because the first 70 years didn't count because he wasn't truly alive. So it took him a long time to reach this level. And he would describe his own awakening as his mirage. Now that word will be familiar to any student of Islam because the the mirage is the miraculous night journey that the Prophet Muhammad took up into the seven heavens. And it is traditionally believed that he left uh, from Al-Aqsa, the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, which is now the third holiest site in Islam because this is where he ascended into the heavens. Well... Bistami describes his own spiritual awakening as his ascension into the seven heavens. So obviously comparing one's own experiences to the prophet is a bit touchy. But this was only the beginning for Bistami. He was known to make utterances that, if taken literally, would be quite blasphemous. Uh, Again, these are those shatiat, which are said to be involuntary exclamations. Now, some of these, when you hear them, they sound really, um, really out there. He is said to have repeated, quote, Glory be to me, how great is my majesty. And again, uh, Bistami was one, he didn't write down anything himself. His sayings were collected by his followers. Uh, He is said to have said, quote, I am I, there is no God but I, so worship me. Now, you can see right there that this would be the most blasphemous statement that a person could make in Islam because, of course, the, the shahada, the, the testimony of faith in Islam is there, there is no God but God. La ilaha illa Allah. Here he's saying no God but I. Again, you have to interpret this as this is God speaking through him or him quoting God, quoting God, but with such intimacy that he sees no difference. He's, he's become one with God. The idea is that Bastami has disappeared. Now, he quotes God as saying to him, all humans are my servants except you. Again, this is a pretty controversial statement, but the idea that you have now, you have now become one, one with me, one with God. In other sayings, he says that the Kaaba walks around him. He says that the Qibla points to him, that the angels praise him, and so on. Now, these are even more extreme than what supposedly got Al-Halaj in trouble, but um, Bayezid was not executed. Uh, He is reported to have had some conflicts with religious jurists, Uh, But there's not the record of the conflicts like Al-Halaj said. Now this, of course, is because his followers explained that the me in these statements is God, not Bayezid, but that he has identified with God. He's got such a tight union with God. But it does sound like he's kind of pushing the envelope here a little bit. And like the other Sufis we have discussed, many of Bayezid's statements can sound sort of universalist, and again, they appeal to people who are not Muslim. Uh, For example, at one point he is quoted to have said, all religions are vehicles 
any path to God's divine presence. Now that sounds about as universalist as you can get. But again, we have to balance this with the reports that we have to show him to be very scrupulous in following Islamic law. He would even wash his tongue before he recited the Quran. So although he's acknowledging that all the other religions out there, whatever they may be, are trying to find a path to our God, he is definitely upholding the idea that Islam is the way to go, uh, and you should be very dedicated in following Islamic law. Now, through all of these statements that we've seen, and particularly the statements of Bayezid, there is an aspect to this mysticism that is deliberately trying to be hard to understand. I mean, they're not just uh, saying things that can be taken more than one way. They're being deliberately controversial and uh, provocative. And you see this in a lot of philosophies, uh, particularly in Zen Buddhism. Right? The Zen masters would intentionally say things in a confusing way. Uh, one of the famous quotes of Zen is, quote, if you meet Buddha on the road, kill him. Now, obviously, that sounds like something they wouldn't want to do, but it's one of these things you have to really think about. What do they actually mean by this? Okay, And so the implication in all of these is that you have to deliberately set yourself off from the common folk to even begin to understand this. So someone like Bayezid saying, the Kaaba circles around me, what on earth are you talking about? In the first place, is a building. How does it circle around him? And, and you're supposed to go circle around the Kaaba. But the idea is that you have to really work at it. I mean, this is not a, not a statement that makes sense immediately. Like, God hates thieves. Right? This, this is something you really got to work at. And so this is common in this mysticism of saying things that could actually be said a lot simpler, but it's not supposed to be easy. You know, For example... Uh, one of the initiations of the Knights Templar was that you had a spit on a cross. Now, of course, this sounds quite blasphemous for people who are supposed to be defending the cross, and the cross was actually their symbol. They had it on their clothes. But the meaning was that the cross was a symbol. It was a reminder to people of the sacrifice of Jesus. And ordinary people, well, they need this reminder. And so that's why we have a symbol for them that they can look at. But us, you see, we're so holy, we are so dedicated that we don't need the symbol. We realize that those are just pieces of wood. And so therefore, we can spit on the cross. We're not spitting on the idea of the crucifixion and the sacrifice of Jesus. But we recognize those are just pieces of wood. Uh, and the cross is just a symbol because Jesus is alive in our hearts 24-7. Now, I'm, I'm not buying into this at all. I'm just telling you what they thought. Um, their, their history doesn't seem to bear this out very well. Uh, and most of the people who heard about the secret Templar rituals didn't buy into this logic either. And that's how they got implicated in just about every conspiracy going in the Middle Ages. But what it does show is that there's this idea of a knowledge that seems to defy the common knowledge, right? Not just that it's different, but you have to really have a special understanding to, to understand how it works. If the Templars can spit on a cross, then the, the Kaaba can circle around by Yazid, and you understand that they're not actually saying what they sound like they're saying. Okay. Well, Bayezid continues to be an inspiration to Sufis throughout the Muslim world. He's included in the lineages of a number of Sufi orders. Uh, and even though he is believed to have died and to be buried in his native city of Bastam, there are shrines in a number of countries where he's supposedly uh, buried. And in fact, one of the largest shrines to him is in Bangladesh today. And so that shows the influence that he has. And I think all this does show, again, that there's a lot more diversity of practice and belief in Islam in the Middle Ages than we often think. And there's certainly a lot more than what the stereotypes out there would suggest. So when we look at these Sufi thinkers, like Rumi, uh, like Bayezid, like um, 
al-Halaj, we see that there are a, a lot more diversity of thought than what people seem to think today. And it shows that Islam is really a multifaceted thing. Remember, it was not just what we see going on in the mosque today, but a, an entire way of life and an entire civilization. And I think this is a point that is often lost. Anyway, thank you again for your kind attention. Thank you for all the kind ratings. Again, that enables us to stay on the air without advertisements. Next time, we're going to start on a new subject, and that is the role of the ethnicity in the Islamic empire. And this has always been a tricky one. What is the relationship of Arab to Islam? and non-Arab in Islam. And we're going to be looking at that for a couple of episodes. But we thank you so much for your kind attention. Please stay tuned. We'll see you again in the future. Inshallah. Shukran jazeelan. Wa ma salama. (laughs) 